Disclaimer. South Park is the property of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. All opinions voiced are our own and not theirs. The following program contains educational course language and due to its hilariously inappropriate content should not be listened to by anyone. Welcome to episode 25. My name is Sophie. And my name's Amanda. And we've already tackled some do 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 topics. Do 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 topics. Do do topics. Do do topics. Do 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 topics. That was fucking awesome. That's my first try. Like, yeah, damn. We're putting some high quality shit out here. You guys should be so proud of us. And we're excited to bring you more. This South Park podcast is like nothing you've heard as it dives into the complex social construct that South Park plays off of. We hope you leave today thinking, I learned something today and had a chuckle. Today's South Park episode is season two, episode 13, Cow Days. This episode touches on carnival games and, trigger warning, mass suicides. Before we start, let's do a recap. We're going to read you the recap because you don't have time for that. On a game show, a couple called Tom and Mary, much to their disappointment, win a prize to go to South Park's 14th annual Cow Days Festival. At the carnival, the boys spot Terrence and Philip dolls on a ball-throwing game. The game features a picture of Jennifer Love Hewitt with the hole as her mouth. Unfortunately, the game is rigged, so the balls are bigger than the hole. Kyle runs out of money after a failed attempt at the game, and the boys go get money from their parents. On the way back through the carnival, Cartman suggests they go on some of the rides, which turns out to be ridiculous, such as the disgusting Chamber of Farts and Line Ride, which is just a ride waiting in line. You mean Disney World? (laughs) (laughs) That came out. I wasn't even expecting that to come. Really good. That no, it was good. It just it threw me off, and I I was like, "Don't don't laugh here," you know. All of these turn out to be a waste of time and money. Like Disney World. <laughs> Back at the ball game, Kyle tries again. On one go, the ball gets stuck in the hole and pops back out, causing Kyle to shout shenanigans. This brings the attention of Officer Barbrady, who inspects the game. The stall owner says Kyle has another ball left and gives him a smaller one that goes through the hole. Barbrady then leaves. Kyle then asks for the dolls, but he gets a toothpick. The stall owner says he needs seven toothpicks so he can trade up for the dolls. The cows of South Park have discovered the newly built giant cow clock and have stolen it. Jimbo asks everyone if they took it, but then believes that Tom and Mary from out of town are the only people with a reason to steal it. They are promptly arrested. Out of money, the boys put Cartman on a bull riding contest due to him wasting all the money on terrible rides. As they trial him, he sustains minor injuries, and they suggest trying him on a real bull next time instead of a simulation. The bull is very timid, but Kyle throws a snowball at the bull's testicles, causing it to go mad. No shit. (laughs) It flings Cartman into the snow, sending him into a deep memory loss. Cartman wakes up and believes himself to be a Vietnamese prostitute named Ming Lee. Fun fact, after Cartman falls off the bull and looks to be dead in the snow, Kenny says, oh my god, they killed Cartman, which may be the reference to the creator's original short, Jesus versus Frosty, where, quote, Kyle said that Frosty killed Kenny while the boy actually resembled Cartman. At the hospital, Dr. Doctor 
explains Cartman will need to rest, but the boys have other plans and put him in the contest. In his unusual frame of mind, Cartman offers to have sex to any adult male he sees. On the bull, he manages to win after holding on tight for a new world record. Jimbo, with the help of Ned, finds the cows that have formed a cult revolving around the cow clock they had stolen. The FBI arrives and tells the cows to freeze, but they ignore him and one by one jump off a cliff to their death. Cartman, having won the contest, has a large amount of prize money that he and the boys use on the ball throwing game. The stall owner says he's going to be really nice and just give the boys the dolls for all their money. Kyle suddenly discovers that the dolls are a ripoff and declares shenanigans again. The whole town declares shenanigans due to being fed up of the festival, being a complete bore, and a riot breaks out. Mayor McDaniels asks Jimbo and Ned what happened to the clock, and they explain the mass cow suicide. The mayor suddenly remembers that they are still holding Tom and Mary, and they forgot to release them. At the prison, the mayor asks Barbrady if he released them, to which he replies, he forgot. The two of them are now merely skeletons being eaten by rats as they starve to death. After the event, Stan and Kyle seem to have gotten hundreds of dolls. Cartman shows up and explains that he had a weird dream involving him becoming a prostitute and making love to Leonardo DiCaprio, to which the actor pulls up in his limousine and says, Thank you, Ming Lee. And Cartman replies, Ah, son of a bitch! So when my husband and I started dating, we went to a traveling fair. I remember him saying, I'm going to win so many prizes for you. And I ended up winning three prizes for myself because I'm an independent woman. <laughs> now, the one game I'm going to be talking about later, I remember him losing so much money on. The balloon popping game. For a game that seemed so easy, it was almost impossible to pop many balloons, let alone when you finally popped, quote unquote, enough. You won a tiny little prize that you then had to trade in and pay more money to win a bigger item. Remind you of Kyle winning toothpicks? So for my topic on carnival games, I wanted to explore the history behind them. And are they really rigged? So for starters, carnival games originated in the royal courts of the Renaissance time period. They began with card games, tricks, and sport activities. Once they arrived in the United States, carnivals were all just traveling shows. Through the 1800s, carnival performers visited rural towns and villages throughout the country. They were usually simple vaudeville, circus, or magic shows. The performers only included modest guessing games without many prizes. Those games gradually became more sophisticated as shows stayed in town for days or weeks at a time. In addition, improvements in technology and logistics allowed for games to be transported easier and developed better. The 1893 Chicago World Fair brought the carnival to mainstream attention. The World Fair set up a number of games and established the first Ferris wheel. Fair games were located along the central midway plazans. They included freak shows, games of chance, wild west shows, and burlesque shows. These established the standard game types that are played today. In fact, the term midway to describe the center of the fairgrounds originates from the Chicago midway. Now, carnival games are often viewed or portrayed as dishonest due to past history that does not always apply to modern-day games and operators. The term mark, meaning sucker, originated with the carnival. When dishonest carnival game operators found someone who they could entice to keep playing their rigged game, they would then mark the individual by patting the back with a ham that had chalk on it. Other game operators would then look for these chalk marks and entice the individuals to also play their rigged games. Fun fact, just like in the episode, police do investigate and test midway games to see if they're rigged. In many areas, local law enforcement will test the carnival games before and during the event. 
Not all carnival games get rigged, but some stack the odds. Here's a look at four common fixes for Midway games. It's probably the most straightforward game on the Midway. A carnival worker stacks three milk bottles in a pyramid, hands you a softball, and you whip it like a baseball pitcher, right? It's not usually that simple. Bottles stacked on the bottom are often filled with lead and weigh in at 10 pounds. And the softball you're given puts an emphasis on soft. They may be filled with cork to make them lighter. Here's one trick to watch for. If one bottle sits more jutted out than the rest, even by half an inch, according to today's show's hidden camera investigation, it absorbs the force of the ball from the others when you give it the best toss. Now, remember when I was talking about the balloon game? Before you step back and let that dart fly, remember you're playing with what the house gives you, dull darts, and often ones that are lighter to throw than store-bought darts. Dull darts are often used in the game, and some carnival employees even heat the tips to make popping balloons more difficult. But the balloons are equally deceptive. They might look ready to burst, but they're usually inflated to just 30% of their full air capacity, making them tough to pop. The reason the balloons are a rainbow of different colors isn't just to make the booth more alluring. It's a distraction technique, too. The basketball hoop rims on free throw booths at carnivals are probably enough to give LeBron James fits. They're smaller than regulation hoops, and according to a 2011 Art of Manliness article, quote, bent into an oblong shape to appear larger in the front, end quote. Bruce Wallstad, an investigator of rigged carnival games, says the oval hoop is designed to make players lose. Even with a perfect shot, there's only a half-inch margin of error for shooters. The rims aren't the only thing that wouldn't fly with NBA regulations. Basketballs are often overinflated to give them an extra bounce. And Glenn Hester, a police officer from Georgia who specializes in carnival games fraud, says that there might be netting or other materials behind the rim designed to interfere with your depth perception. When a carnival worker slides a ring around a pole to show how easy the game is, that's because the game is exactly that simple. At least from where the employee is standing. Usually somewhere where he can just drop the ring from directly overhead and with a ring that's wider than the one he gave you to toss. Glenn Hester warns about the pitfalls of ring toss games as well. The rings are just barely wider than the bottlenecks and are made of hard plastic so they're more likely to bounce around than loop around your target. Games often seem as though they're stacked in the house's favor, but games are not impossible to win. Now how about I tell you how to win them? And if someone can try these and let me know, that would be amazing. So for the milk bottle pyramid, aim for the center of the two lowest bottles and throw the ball as hard as you can. For the balloons and darts, to counteract potentially dull darts, look for the shiniest thinnest balloons. Those are the ones that are inflated the most. This will increase your chances of popping a balloon. For the basketball shot, try a high arc that will help you swish the ball. Otherwise, aim for the top of the square on the backboard so that the ball will bank right into the net. And for the ring toss, for the best chances, toss the ring so that it remains as flat horizontally as possible. Think of throwing it as you would a frisbee. Now what we want to do for each episode is provide you with a place to learn more. Check out Carnival Scam Science and How to Win on YouTube by Mark Robber. The video details the science behind various carnival games and tips and tricks on how to maximize your odds of winning a prize. It's like a myth-busting video for carnival games. I highly recommend. And I enjoy how he collected the data and even brought a professional baseball player to try the milk bottle game. This is also the YouTuber who created a glitter bomb for porch pirates. Hi pals! So today my topic is a slightly morbid one. It's the history of mass suicide. So 
this is your official trigger warning. If this is going to be a tough topic for you, this is your permission to turn off the episode and go do some form of self-care instead. Take a walk, read a book, go for a bath, play some video games, whatever you need to do. Have a wonderful rest of your day and please take care. We'll be there in the next episode. We'll even give you our signature bye. 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 Okay, so for those of you still listening, let's dive in. As I said, we're covering the history of mass suicide, so I'm just going to give you some historical mass suicides. So following the destruction of Iliturgus by the Roman general Publius Cornelius Scopio in 206 BC, people of Asapatan, knowing they faced a similar fate, killed themselves and burnt the city with all its treasures, rather than surrendering to their enemies. During the late 2nd century BC, the Teutons are recorded as marching south through Gaul along with their neighbors, the Cimbri, and attacking Roman Italy. After several victories for the invading armies, the Cimbri and the Teutons were then defeated by Gaius Marcin in 102 BC at the Battle of Aquia Sextia, near present-day Axian Provence. Their king, Tutumbo, was taken in irons. The captured women committed mass suicide, which passed into Roman legends of Germanic history. By the conditions of the surrender, 300 of their married women were handed over to the Romans. When the Tatan matrons heard of the stipulation, they first begged the consul that they might be set apart to the minister of the temples of the Circei in Venus. Then, when they failed to obtain their request and were removed by the lictors, they slew their children and the next morning were all found dead in each other's arms, having strangled themselves in the night. At the end of 15 months of a siege of Numantan in Numantia in the summer of 133 BC, most of the defeated Numantians, instead of surrendering to the Romans, preferred to commit suicide and again set fire to the city. The 960 members of the Sicarii Jewish community in Mazara collectively committed suicide in 73 AD, rather than be conquered and enslaved by the Romans. Each man killed his wife and children, and then the men drew lots and killed each other until the last man killed himself. Some modern scholars have questioned this account of events. I could understand why. Oh, yeah. In the sense of, like, especially the drawing of lots. Yeah. Like, no one was there to see it happen. Mm-mm. We yeah. don't know what really happened. Exactly, yeah. Everybody, like, the last guy killed himself. That's the last witness. Exactly. And, I mean, you can kind of assume that, yeah, slavery. But yeah. who's to say that the Romans just didn't murder them and say they killed themselves? Exactly. We are seeing a recurring pattern. Yeah. That yeah. rather face death than defeat. Or enslavement or torture. Understandably. Yeah. In the 700s, the remnants of a Montanistist were ordered by the Byzantine Empire Leo III to leave their religion and join Orthodox Christianity. They refused, locked themselves in their place of worship, and set themselves on fire. I'm really seeing a fire pattern here. I don't like it. In India, the mass suicide, also known as Jahar, was carried out by women and men of the defeated community when the fall of the city besieged by Muslim forces was certain. Some of the known cases of Jahar of Rajaput women are at the fort of Chitari in Rajahastan in 1303, in 1535, and in 1568. They've had to go through that multiple times. In 1336, when the castle of Pelian in the Grand Duch of Lithuania was besieged by the army of the Tectonic Knights, the defenders, led by Duke Magris, realized that it was impossible to defend themselves any longer and made the decision to commit mass suicide as well as to set the castle on fire in order to destroy all their possessions and anything of value to the enemy. During the Great Shyam in the Russian Church, entire villages of old believers burnt themselves to death in an act known as fire baptism. Yeah, you're right. There is a reoccurring fire theme. 
1792, revolutionary France abolished slavery in its Caribbean colonies. However, in 1802, Napoleon decided to restore slavery. In Guadalupe, former slaves who refused to be re-enslaved started rebellions, led by Luis Algres. Of course, as you should. And for some time, they were able to resist the French army sent to suppress them. But finally came to the realization that they could not win but still refused to surrender. At the Battle of Matabua on May 28, 1802, Delgras and his followers, 400 men and some women, ignited their gunpowder stores, committing mass suicide while attempting to kill as many French troops as possible. Going down fighting. During the Turkish rule of Greece and shortly after the Greek War of Independence, women from Soli, pursued by the Ottomans, ascended to Mount Zalongo, threw their children over the precipice, and then jumped themselves to avoid capture an event known as the Dance of Zalongo. In the final phase of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, many of the fighters besieged in the, quote, bunkers of Mila 18 committed mass suicide by ingesting poison rather than surrendering to the Nazis. Germany was stricken by a series of unpredictable waves of suicide during the final days of the Nazi regime. The reasons for these waves of suicide were numerous and included the effects of the Nazi propaganda. The example of suicide of Adolf Hitler. Victims' establishment to the ideals of the Nazi party, a reaction to the loss of the war, and consequently, the anticipated Allies' occupation of Germany. Life magazine speculates about the suicides, quote, In the last days of the war, the overwhelming realization of utter defeat was too much for many Germans. Stripped of the bayonets and bombast, which had given them power, they could not face a reckoning with either their conquerors or their consciences. They found the quickest and surest escape in what Germans call Selbstmord a.k.a. self-murder. On May 1st, 1945, about a thousand residents of Demin, Germany, committed mass suicide after the Red Army had sacked the town. A Balinese mass ritual suicide is called a Paputin. A major Paputin occurred in 1906 to 1908, when Balinese kingdoms faced overwhelming Dutch colonial forces. The root of the Balinese term Paputin is Paput, meaning finishing or ending. It is an act that is more symbolic than strategic. The Balinese are, quote, a people whose genius for theater is unsurpassed, end quote. And a Paputin is viewed as, quote, the last act of a tragic dance drama. And finally, Japan is known for its centuries of suicide traditions, from seppuki ceremonies, self-disembowelment, to kamikaze warriors flying their aircrafts into allied warships, and bonsai charges during World War II. During the same war, the Japanese forces announced to the people of Saipan that the invading American troops were going to torture and murder anyone on the island. In a desperate effort to avoid this, the people of Saipan committed suicide, many jumping from places later named Suicide Cliff and Bonsai Cliff. So yeah, Japan has the highest rate of suicide in the world. Yeah. But one thing I was surprised that was not on here, I guess it's not a mass suicide, but is about Japan's suicide forest. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. There was a movie about that, wasn't there? There was, yes. That was also how Jake Paul yeah, got yeah. into the media. So it's called Akikahara, and many people go there to commit suicide every year. Yeah, kind of like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Yes. Just yes. a very common suicide spot, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... How can we help our listeners? As we talked about, we always want to provide you with a place to learn more. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, that's okay. You're not alone, and it's okay to reach out for help. So here in Canada, the number for suicide prevention services hotline is 24 hours, 365, is 
four five six four five six six and google is fantastic anywhere you type in suicide hotline it'll give you your location hotline and it'll also tell you help is available talk to someone today and for our american listeners logic came out with a song 1-800-276-8255 which is a song about mental health and suicide prevention awareness and is actually the suicide hotline number now that we've covered such a heavy topic for today take some time to take care of yourself now this is the part of the episode where we talk about our favorite part of the South Park episode. So Amanda, tell us about your favorite part. As you guys know, my favorite part's always when my man Kenny dies. And also, shout out to whoever puts like an archive list of every single Kenny death episode. I appreciate you. So in this episode, Kenny, of course, gets killed by the bull, the bull's horns that Cartman's riding. Which is actually a very calm death for Kenny. Yeah, considering all things and considering like... The other topics in this episode, not bad. Not yeah, a bad not bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Miss Sophie, what was your, uh, Mrs. Sophie, what was your favorite part? My favorite part has to be Tom and Mary winning. You know, it reminds me of that one game show where the little girl is given the choice between, do you want to win a family vacation for you and your parents or this giant stuffed giraffe? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, for the listeners that haven't seen that, she picks the giraffe. To her parents' delight. <laughs> yes. So I really feel for Tom and Mary thinking that they've won something big and in the end they end up dying in jail cells. So Not what they had planned. No, vacation from hell. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We will be putting out episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at two female prime ministers. Reach out to us and let us know what you liked, how we can improve, and share us with your friends. And if you really liked us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. We hope after listening to our episode today, you thought, you know, I learned something today. Bye! Bye.